Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. This is going to be a spectacular hour because Dr. Mark Muska is in studio for Ask the Professor. So any questions you have about the Bible, any verse that or person or passage you've struggled with, let me know what it is. Send the question to 877-933-2484. We'll get that question answered once and for all. We can always do that. Dr. Mark Muska has been at University of Northwestern teaching for 30-something years. Six, seven? Not even listening. I love it. I love it. He's not even listening. It's beautiful. Oh. No, things will improve. I know things will improve. There's, <laughs> the, mi- <laughs> There's the microphone. Yeah. You're supposed to talk into this, right? Yeah. That's the thing you talk into. Okay. With the head. Yeah. Thanks. So we're doing Hi, good. Hey, Mark. So 36 years? 37? 36? How many years here at Northwestern? A long time. Yeah, I figured. I figured. It's so, like asking a woman her age. Yeah, which she never should do. No. No. All right, let's uh, jump into some questions. A listener wants to know about uh, this uh, this comparing Genesis 23 and Acts 7. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to match up. Could he help to explain that to us? Um, so in Genesis 23, Abraham bought a field mm-hmm. to bury Sarah. In Acts 7, Stephen is speaking before the council and says that Abraham bought a burial place in Shechem. How do you say that? Shechem. Shechem, yeah from the sons of Hamor, who is the father of Shechem. Mm -hmm. The statement in Acts seems to better match up with Genesis 33, which is the piece of land Jacob bought. Oh. That's mm -hmm. not a softball question out of the gate. No, I mean, Acts 7, uh, this is where Stephen's life is on the line. He's been accused of speaking against Moses and the law, and so he takes the uh, Jewish leadership through a quick... uh, survey of the Old Testament and uh, showing how they, in fact, had been resisting God and his spirit all through the years. And so, tell you the truth, I've I got to look at this a little bit, so uh, I'm not prepared to that's, be able to... That's cool. I really dropped a bomb on you to get things you started. Did, yeah. with about 30 seconds notice. And so... That I have not looked at carefully, and yeah, so yeah. we can... We'll get to that maybe during the break. We can we can look at it a little bit. Sure. Um, Mark, what do you know about apostolic doctrine? Well, that's the... I don't know necessarily what people associate that with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the idea of apostolic doctrine or apostolic teaching is is that when uh, Jesus left, when he was ascended, the apostles were the ones who were designated with the authority mm-hmm. to proclaim the gospel. And so what a what an apostle taught was true. And so uh, Paul makes a big deal out of this because he kind of came late to the apostolic ranks. It wasn't until after he became saved and in Damascus and... Uh, Jesus called him, he says in Galatians 1 specifically, uh, to be one of the apostles. But uh, Paul had to face this with apostolic teaching, apostolic authority, that when he taught, it was authoritative. Mm-hmm. 
and the same with the other apostles. And so when he taught, it wasn't like he was trying to persuade them that what he was saying was true or get the vote to go his way and the majority would vote with him so they'd believe him. He pretty much said, me apostle, you Christian, me say you do. <laughs> and and that, mm-hmm. uh, that carries down through the ages now in, uh, well, there's a fork in the river uh, between the thinking in the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church on this because the Roman Catholic Church will uh, continue this with an idea called apostolic succession, Mm -hmm. that when uh, Peter was the first of these uh, uh, popes that the church had, but when Peter died and that generation died, he was succeeded by someone else who had that apostolic authority uh, placed upon him. And uh, I just was talking with with someone who had been in Rome, and they said that there is a... a, uh, public, uh, I don't know if it's a poster or what it is, but in the Vatican where they have all the names of these men down through the ages that go through and now until Pope Benedict XV and Pope Francis I, that they have that same apostolic authority so that what they teach is authoritative and it's true. Mm-hmm. And so they attach another word to that of apostolic infallibility, that they cannot make a mistaken doctrine because they carry this same apostolic authority. Their teaching is apostolic teaching. That's the branch of the river that went in the Catholic direction. The branch that went in the Protestant direction sees much more the idea that this apostolic authority, it ended with the death of the last apostles. Uh, Pretty much consensus that that was John the apostle, that he probably died right around the end of the first century. And after that, this apostolic authority in people then faded. But what we have now for apostolic authority today is the Bible. Because one of the key teachings about the authority of the Bible is that the Bible is God's word. It is from him to us through Apostles. So each one of these uh, books in the New Testament that was included in the New Testament, it was either authored by an apostle himself or under the guidance or supervision of an apostle, every Mm -hmm. single one of them. And if it couldn't be established that that was the case, a potential book to be added to the New Testament was given the hevo. They did not uh, acknowledge it as being authoritative. So apostolic authority for Protestants goes in the direction of the the authority of the Scriptures. The, uh, in fairness to the Catholic Church, they see the Scriptures as being authoritative as well, but then also the Pope carries this apostolic mantle as well. Hmm. Does that make answer. sense? It does. It's yeah, okay. well explained. Thank you, Mark. It's hard to say that in two sentences. No, you know, I no, you so. did a beautiful job of explaining it, so thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, another question here. Uh, please ask Dr. Muska why God was going to kill Moses before Zipporah circumcised their son. Yeah, you know, that's... That is just one of those passages that's a head-scratcher, and I wish I could just give you straight from Sinai to you and give you the answer to that <laughs> and settle it all, yeah. but that is uh, just one of those those illustrations in the narrative of the Scripture, and this happens all over the place, where the narrative is not complete, and it does not address every issue that comes up. You get this in Genesis especially. That's over there in Exodus where that happens with Moses. But in Genesis, there's about a dozen times where something happens out of the blue and you go, what? where'd that come from? Or 
how'd that go? And and the reason is, is because that uh, Moses, the author of this, didn't consider it important enough to fill in all the details. It's not a thorough biography and narrative and history of what mm-hmm. happened in those days. It's selective. It just takes certain things. And so everybody's got a theory about that with why that, uh, you know, this thing happens with Moses here and the circumcision. It's my best guess is that this sign of circumcision instituted in Genesis 17, this identified the descendants of Abraham as being the descendants who carried the blessing that God promised to Abraham. That started in Genesis 12, and he promises Abraham, I will bless you, I will bless the family that comes from you, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In my humble opinion, that that verse is at the very center of the message of the Bible, because then when Jesus comes around, guess what he's called? The son of Abraham. So through the son of Abraham, the blessing comes to all the families of the earth through what Jesus did. So that is, that's just central. And so you see then that when Moses, now remember Moses lived about 500 years later, so a lot of time has gone by. And these Hebrews, to identify with that promise that God gave to Abraham, they would circumcise their male children. And so by not doing this, this is a, uh, it's a dereliction of Moses, not to bring them under the covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this is a big deal, though, too, because when they go through the wilderness for 40 years, when Moses leads them out, they go into um, the promised land that God has promised them, and the men have to be circumcised because they hadn't been circumcising any of their men for 40 years in the wilderness. And so this was to bring them in compliance again with the promises that God had given them, because one of the parts of that promise is he promised them that land. And so they're going in to conquer it. And so they have to come under God's mantle, so to speak, of his promise that then circumcision was the sign that showed that. Mm. So wise. And you've got this beautiful delivery system. I could listen to you talk all day. Amazing. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, at least this hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take that. That's, that's better <laughs> that's than a start, that's, isn't it? That's better than sometimes. Yeah. Get, All so. right. Let me take a little break, but Dr. Mm-hmm. Mark Muska is here with me. So let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. If you like email, bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back. the show. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. More importantly, he's my friend, and I yeah. love, love being with him. All right, Mark, we're looking at Easter. Let's talk. Yeah. Big great week. Great week. It's a it's great a time of week. the year. Minnesotans love it, but just because the weather gets nicer. Absolutely. You know, we've had an absolute lammy of a March, so it hasn't been so bad, but <laughs> yeah. uh, this has been wonderful, and now the 70 degrees out there. I rode my bike over here. I saw that. Uh, amazing. I saw so. your bike before I saw you. Yeah. Because you brought it up into the studio. I did. Yeah. Yep. I don't want anybody messing with my it's bike. It's a really nice bike. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, this week 
is, of course, when we commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, I think you can make a case, arguably, Bill, that this is really the most important week in Christianity. It's a big deal with Christmas, too, and you can get into some of the other things, but this is at the heart of why Jesus came in the first place. I mean, I'm impressed that when Jesus was first born and he's taken to the temple to be circumcised and to be dedicated as the firstborn child, uh, Simeon is this man of God. God's promised him he's going to see Israel's salvation before he dies. And he takes Jesus and says, now, Lord, you can let your servant depart in peace. I've Mm -hmm. seen Mm. your salvation. But then he looks at Mary and he says, many will rise and fall in Israel because of this child and a sword will pierce your own heart as well. So even when the kid isn't probably even a month old yet, uh, this shadow of the cross is on him. That this is the, 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 not the only reason that Jesus came, but the central reason that Jesus came. So here we go. We just celebrated yesterday the idea of him coming into Jerusalem, riding a donkey, and they hailed him. And now during this week, uh, everything builds to a climax with the opposition to Jesus. And he, uh, he knows perfectly well what's coming and uh, he follows through with it. And so uh, the death of Christ on, uh, on Good Friday that is commemorated here now following with uh, the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday, uh, awesome stuff. And so uh, I thought I'd, I'd kind of go backwards here with this whole thing about the resurrection first because I agree with the theologians, Bill, that say that the resurrection is the single most important event for the credibility of the Christian faith. That if Jesus is was not raised from the dead, the whole Christian faith collapses. Mm-hmm. But if he is raised from the dead, it's a game changer. Things will never be the same. And Paul brings that out. Can I read oh, please. passages here? Oh, yes. The central passage about the gospel in the whole New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, where Paul just says to the Corinthians, he says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel. And then he says, The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you the gospel as of first importance what I received. And then he tells them what the gospel is. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to many of us. And so that is the very core of the gospel message. Christ died for our sins and he was raised on the third day. Okay. And then you know, a lot of times people call 1 Corinthians 15 the resurrection chapter because he talks about the resurrection so much, but it's really the gospel chapter. And the resurrection is the absolute central thing to the validity of all this. Paul does a little bit of apologetics uh, starting in verse 13, where he, he thinks from the negative. He says, if there is no resurrection, he says, seven things are true. So then if there is a resurrection, you flip the coin over and all these things are true. Mm -hmm. And so listen to it. Verse 13, Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then number one, our preaching is vain. Number two, your faith also is vain. It's worthless. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, it's not worth anything, our preaching or your faith. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. 
thing number three that's true if he hasn't been raised. Paul's a false witness to God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, number four, your faith is worthless. Number five, you are still in your sins. See how he connects it back? Mm -hmm. Christ died for our sins. How do we know that our sin is forgiven? Because he raised him from the dead. We are no longer in our sins. Number six, then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Number seven, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of all men most to be pitied. So take your pick. Mm-hmm. Christ is raised. Their preaching is powerful. Our faith is effective. We are no longer in our sins. Those who have died have the great hope of living again with Christ forever, and we are to be the most privileged of all men to be able to declare that message. That is the significance of the resurrection. So hallelujah for that, that Christ is raised. Uh, an old saint that, well, he's really old because he died just a few years ago, but uh, a theologian that taught at both Dallas Seminary and Trinity Seminary, uh, Seminary by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, he said it, I think, the best I've ever heard, where he said, the resurrection is God's amen to Jesus, it is finished. I mean, think about that for a minute. Jesus hangs on the cross, he's near death, and he says, it's finished. Mm-hmm. The payment has been made. Sin has been atoned for. And the resurrection is God saying, amen, brother. It is finished. It gives us confidence that Jesus didn't deceive us when he said that he is the Lamb of God. He will take the burden of the world's sin. Mm-hmm. We can have confidence in that. In fact, that's what faith is, Bill. It's depending on Jesus that what he said was true, that he died so my sins can be forgiven and yours too. Do you depend on that? I do. It's like too. we're having a private conversation and other people are listening. Yeah. Rosie, I think, she's smiling over there. I think she's she here depends to on that too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was so great. I'm taking notes amazing? so fast. Yeah. 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 It was I was amazing. Forgetting what I was doing, I was trying to take notes so those, fast. Those are my two euphemisms for faith. We get stuck on that sometimes. But faith is when you depend on something or you rely on it to be true. And we, to be saved, we can't just acknowledge Jesus is great. We just can't say that, oh, yeah, that stuff's true. We have to depend on it mm-hmm. so that when we stand before God someday and he asks us why he should allow us into his presence, I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I don't think anything about me, but I'm depending on your word that Jesus, he told the truth when he said when he died, he paid for my sin. I'm dependent on that. It's a little more than an academic acknowledgement, isn't it? Yes. You are laying, you are, uh, it's a high stakes poker game, if I can use that. Mm -hmm. And your life and your soul is in the pot with me and Satan sitting on one side of the table and Jesus on the other. And we depend on him that he's got the winning hand. It's just, that's what, that's why we all sing triple forte on Easter (laughs) Sunday. Yeah. We get fired up. We get Mm -hmm. excited because hallelujah, we are, we are forgiven. We no longer are in our sins. So then when you start talking about the, the ramifications for those who die, this is another one of the beauties in Paul's writings. If I can keep going, I mean, if I'm blabbing on, you stop me. All right. No, please. But uh, this is the best passage, in my opinion, to be read when uh, someone in Christ dies. It's First uh, Thessalonians 4. We've read this a bunch of times on this program. 
but evidently the Thessalonian Christians, they're new believers, and they got worried because Paul's been teaching them that Jesus is coming back, but some of these brothers and sisters in Christ have died, and they're worried. Are they going to miss out? Are they going to, it's uh, this, remember the old movie, I wish we'd all been ready uh, for this. They're worried that these these Christians who've died are going to miss out. So Paul wants to reassure them. And he says in verse 13, for we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, about those who died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. And then listen to what he says. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? I do. Do you believe that? Yes, I do. Yeah, you just nod and smile. I like that smile, Rosie. Yeah, she believes it too. I do too. So that he's talking to us. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This isn't from me, Paul saying. This is from Jesus. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That last phrase is the best, that it doesn't matter. That's what awaits us. Why? Because Christ rose, and I didn't read it, but in 1 Corinthians 15, it also says, and he's the first fruits of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, but he's not the last. We're looking forward to that same trip when he, when that archangel shouts, when that trumpet sounds. We know from the other scriptures, Bill, that Jesus is almost certainly coming to the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. And I got to tell you, when I've been at Israel the last few times, we stand on the Mount of Olives and people can't see what I'm doing, but I look up and I'm going back and forth like, okay, Jesus, man, this is great. Right <laughs> right now, mm-hmm. the, the, I, got a, I got a front row seat yeah. right here That'd where you're awesome. coming back. Well, man, that's yeah. better than anything. Yeah. So he's coming back, we are assured of this. And so that is it. That's the sweet spot. That is the core of what we depend on from God. Mm-hmm. He has forgiven us through Christ's death, and we will live with him forever. One of the pastors in the area, I love the way he said it. He said, heaven's not going to be any good if Jesus isn't there. <laughs> but Jesus is going to yeah. be there. Yeah. Let me know what your questions are or comments. I've got nice comments coming in. People are celebrating what you just said. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is right. 877-933-2484. Ask the professor is the topic. My guest is Dr. Mark Muska. Please send your text over, or if you'd like, you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's 
Ask the Professor. Dr. Mark Musk is here. Let me know what your questions are or comments. 877-933-2484. Uh, Mark, can we go to uh, Matthew 28, just go to the resurrection, uh, the dawn of the first day of the week? There was a violent earthquake. Yeah. What must have been that? Like, you know, the angel of the Lord comes down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Mm -hmm. His appearance was like lightning Lightning. and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So that would have been me. That would have been me, too. Uh, So obviously the angel says, do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Yeah. Come see, go tell. They weren't going to the tomb to look for a resurrected Jesus, were they? (laughs) They were going to continue the burial. Yeah. They had been rushed because the Passover. I get that. But but if he's going to rise on the third day, why were they going to continue the burial? You know, that's one of the great mysteries there. I think I don't want to sound like Mr. Junior Psychologist here. Oh, okay. I think it's more spiritual that God hid this from them when Jesus talked about it. Okay. Because anybody who's read the Gospels, especially about the last half of the story in each of the Gospels, Jesus is laying it right out there, what's coming. When they're going to Jerusalem, he says, the Son of Man's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected and put on trial and crucified, and three days later, rise again. And it seemed like they didn't hear that last part, because they were they were terrified <laughs> mm-hmm. of him going to Jerusalem. They want to stop him yeah. from going. But he said that several times. But they they just didn't get it. Uh, one of the hints I have for that, that God just didn't... You know what the idea of illumination is? It's like when a light illuminates a room, you can see. And that's a doctrine that we hold to, that the one of the Holy Spirit's jobs is to illuminate us mm-hmm. when we read the Scripture and when we think about divine things. And so that illumination hadn't happened yet for these guys. Uh, it, it's, it's really interesting, Bill. In uh, John chapter 2, uh, Jesus talks about uh, the uh, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then John throws in a comment where he says uh, they they didn't understand this until after the resurrection. And so I believe it was that with Moses and the serpent. It might have been that he also said that destroy this temple in three days, I will build it back. And he was talking about his body, and they thought he was talking about the building. And so they just didn't get it. So I think that's what happened is there was just a screen over their comprehension for that time and talk about all the pieces of the puzzle just lining right up for them when they saw the resurrected Christ. Because even then, the gospel writers will say that some were still not believing even after they had seen him. And remember, Thomas is the poor guy that's been labeled as a doubter for yeah. all eternity because he doubted it. And and uh, it it was something that they had to grow into. And I, honestly, I'm encouraged by that. It's not like these guys were just superhuman. They were flesh and blood, and there were some really big changes going on, and they had trouble catching up to it. So let's give them a little break there and what's happening. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they they're shocked 
by this. I mean, the, <laughs> uh, we could get into the angels here. You know, everybody has these pictures of these Renaissance artists with these angels, and usually they kind of look like girls because, <laughs> well, they're really beautiful, mm-hmm. and they've got the flowing hair, and it's just like this. You look in the Bible, every time some angel shows up, people hit the deck. They're just terrified of these things. So, I mean, one clue of this, the, the, the seraphim, this class of angels, yeah. the seraph, Seraph means burning one. Mm. So just think about that a while, for a while, what this angel must look like. Uh, so I don't blame these guards. You know, they hit the deck. They they probably faked it that they were, you know, out cold. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want to mess with this angel. What do you, uh, what is your take on Jesus revealing himself for the very first time to a, a woman that he drove demons out of? Uh, I believe it. I do too. Yeah. I, but, I'm not but, sure where you're going with that. Well, just we're in a society where uh, a woman's uh, point or her perspective, her testimony is not going to be as rapidly accepted as a man's. Yeah. And the the apostles, you know, that that when the women came back and reported that they had seen their risen yeah. Christ, you know, that would be an issue there. Uh, this, uh, I like it. Uh, Jesus, he's, he seems sure she seems to be non-discriminatory, you know, that they were the ones that came to minister to his body there after he died. And so kabing kabang, you know, they're going to be the first ones to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that too, though, because Mary, <laughs> she must've grabbed Jesus because he says to her, stop clinging to me. <laughs> you know, I haven't ascended to my yeah. father yet. It's like Mary said, you got away from us once and you're yeah. not getting away yeah. again. That's you know? a power hug. She didn't let up. Huh? Yeah. I gotcha. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Here's a topic, Mark, mm. maybe a little bit difficult to explain the relevance of the gift of speaking in tongues and how does mm-hmm. it still apply today? Yeah. You, you know, we're not going to come to agreement on this sure. among brothers and sisters in the church, and I hope we can live with each other on this. Uh, Bill, you and I have been alive long enough to know this was really, really contentious in the 20th century because there was a whole claimed experience of renewal of these, what we sometimes call Pentecostal gifts or charismatic gifts of the Spirit, uh, such as tongues and prophecy, uh, healings, miracles being performed, and this kind of thing. It dates back pretty much to right around 1900. But now, 120 years later, the dust has kind of settled, and I think people have found their positions a little bit more. There isn't as much arguing about this. But you're going to have two radically, at least two radically different views on this. Mm -hmm. The gift of tongues is listed as one of the legitimate gifts of the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, do not forbid people to speak in tongues. And so... This is not something to be denigrated. It is a legitimate gift of the Spirit. Its function appears to have multiple functions to it. Uh, I, I would guess today probably the most common thing you're going to hear about people, they describe this as a private prayer language mm-hmm. that they have, that the Holy Spirit assists them in their prayer to the Lord, especially when they don't exactly know what to pray. They can't find the words for it. And the Spirit helps them. There's a verse in Romans 8 that seems to bring this out. And also in 1 Corinthians 14 at the beginning of the chapter where it seems as though there is a place for this when you are in the privacy of your time with just you and the Lord. And now there are people that are going to disagree with me on this bill and say, no, this gift, uh, it it went out of uh, circulation by the end of the first century, and it and it hasn't come back, and so uh, we'll we'll get into an argument real quick here if I'm not careful. But that 
seems to be the way that the scriptures describe this function of this gift. In public, the gift of tongues was associated with the interpretation of tongues, mm-hmm. where in a public setting, when the church gathers, if someone manifested a tongue in the church, uh, Paul directs this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 14, that if no one interprets that message in tongues, in this language that nobody there knows, if no one interprets it, the man speaking in tongues or the woman is supposed to sit down and keep quiet. But it is legitimate then to have it interpreted, and Paul elevates interpreted tongues to the level of prophecy in the church. So it's a legitimate gift. Paul says at the beginning of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians that you should seek the spiritual gifts, especially to prophesy. Why prophesy? Because it edifies the body, and that is the purpose of the church, of the gifts of the Spirit, mm-hmm. so that the built the church be built up. It's almost like a construction term, to be edified. It's to be built up. It's to be strengthened. The church should be strengthened through the operation of the gifts within the body of the church, and tongues is a legitimate part of that. The passage that we argue about like crazy about whether these Pentecostal gifts or these charismatic gifts were done away with at the end of the apostolic age, at the end of the first century, it's in the love chapter of all things in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, talk about irony that we argue like cats and dogs (laughs) over a chapter that's talking about love. But uh, after Paul describes what love is, uh, starting in verse 8, let me just read it. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, he says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. So that's biblical, that tongues will cease. If there is knowledge or a gift of knowledge, knowing mysteries, it will be done away. And then Paul says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And then the verse that gets everybody going is verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. And the million-dollar question is, what is that perfect? And the sense is, when the perfect thing comes. So what is that perfect thing? Those who think these gifts faded, and they have proof historically of it, is that when the New Testament scriptures were completed, this gift of tongues and prophecy and knowledge wasn't necessary anymore. While the scriptures were being written in the first century, they needed to have this voice of prophecy and interpreted tongues to guide and lead the church. But once Mm -hmm. the scriptures were completed by the end of the first century, the need for these gifts faded. And there's a pretty strong historical argument for that, that these gifts, you know, there was some uh, bubbling up here and there through the centuries, but not until 1900 did it really come back. And so this is used by this group that I don't think they're trying to attack people, but they're just trying to bring sense to this about these gifts being active. Now, those who think these gifts are active again, they will see that perfect thing in 1 Corinthians 13.10 as the return of Christ. So that when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, then all these partial gifts will be done away with. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we're not going to settle this today because along with careful scripture study, Bill, there is a boatload of experience that people tap into who have experienced tongues. Some people I've talked with and listened to them very carefully, they weren't even seeking anything like tongues. And all of a sudden this happened and they startled themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they were opened to a whole different uh, pathway in their Christian lives. So uh, I think there's a lot of 
how do I say this nicely? One of my favorite professors, professors used to say, wherever there is light, there's bugs. And so whenever you study the truth and try to get to the light of it, you're always going to have extremists out on the fringes that are a little crazy. <laughs> and you've got that on the non-Pentecostal side as well as the Pentecostal side. And, you know, brothers and sisters, we got to be fair to people we don't agree with. Don't characterize them by the wacky extreme in their stance. Listen to them carefully and come together on it, whether they're Pentecostal or non-Pentecostal. It's just not right. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a, a, a fallacy to do that kind of thing. So uh, I, am, I try to listen very carefully. The questions I ask with any of these gifts, Bill, that helps me to either have you know, some inkling that these things are true or I start shaking my head is number one, is the body strengthened through the exercising of this gift? And you should be able to see that. Mm-hmm. People's, people's faith being strengthened. Is uh, the gospel more effectively reaching those who are non-Christians through the exercising of these gifts? And third, is God being glorified through the exercising of these gifts? That's not a surefire answer all, but mm-hmm. it helps you get That's, on the right path. It's amazing. It's a great answer, Mark. And your answer reminds me that my job here is just to stay out of the way. That's my job. Because that was a beautiful explanation. I love that. These are all so long today. I mean, usually we have just rapid fire stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So So. we're going to take a little break. When we come back, Mark, I want to ask you about what the Scripture teaches on physical healing. Okay. That's um, From the frying pan into the fire here, buddy. Exactly, exactly. Thank you very much. Well, unless we get, you know, a whole flurry of questions, I will will let you off the hook if we get a big flurry of questions. And you can send them over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Muska asked the professor, Mark, uh, right before break, I was asking about praying for physical healing. And this, this involves everybody because everybody is either praying for something or praying for someone for miraculous Hmm. healing. And it's my desire and it's my prayer. And I pray very specifically for complete removal of, of cancerous tissues and and healings, and I just lay it all on the line with the Lord. I got you, Bill. I I understand. Right now, in our family, we've got a couple that are just weighing us down with uh, one of our dear friends, uh, the wife in the marriage, uh, just into her 60s, and she's uh, Alzheimer's. Mm. And to see this slow deterioration, and it's just breaking the heart of her husband. And we pray and we seek the Lord, and it's difficult. Right. It's very, very difficult. And then I got another one where it's a relative in-law who now is uh, uh, battling ALS. And this guy's a fighter. And uh, to see that degenerative disease just 
going like mm-hmm. this. And it's again, it's just killing those around him. It's very difficult. So uh, this uh, healing, remember, that is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, very interesting, though, that um, I'll come back to this in a minute. But when this gift is talked about in 1 Corinthians 12... And in other places, it's described as uh, some have gifts of healings. And that's just kind of weird that it's a double plural there. Mm -hmm. It's not somebody has a gift of healing. I'll find it here at the uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12.30. Paul's asking a bunch of rhetorical questions here to show that not everybody's got every gift. And so in verse 29, he says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? And the answer is, of course, no. All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? And then look at verse 30. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? He doesn't say all don't have the gift of healing. It's double plural. So just hang on to that for a minute. Because this is something... The church gets so blurred on this, and we have to discriminate between miraculous healings taking place and this gift of healing or gifts of healings that is a legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? Because I don't know very many people in the church that don't believe that God heals. Of course he does. The the evidence is overwhelming of major stuff and more incidental stuff. Mm -hmm. But this happens all the time, whether you're a Pentecostal or not a Pentecostal. It's it's something we pray for and we seek the Lord on. So when it comes to praying for people to be healed, we don't have to back off on that at all. Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal ought to be able to join hands in complete agreement on that. Somebody's sick, we're going to pray for that person to be healed, all right? Where the issue comes is, do certain people in the church have this gift of healings? Uh, In our current society, all you have to do is turn on the TV or look on the internet, and you're going to see certain people who are labeled as faith healers, where they have ministries, people flock to them, by the thousands to attend their services, and they claim to have the gift of healing where mm-hmm. they're able to lay hands on them, uh, shout at them, uh, throw something t- uh, at them, um, imaginary, and people will be healed. In these, uh, I've watched several of these, and in these, a lot of the time, the first three rows of the auditorium are filled with wheelchairs. Mm-hmm of people seeking to be healed by this person who has the gift of healing. That's where the Pentecostal and non-Pentecostals will have a pretty interesting discussion to say, is God doing this with specific people in the church to enable them with this gift of healings? Okay. And again, you get experience into this thing all over the place of, well, Is it an instantaneous healing? Sometimes it's claimed, well, it's a healing that's in process. Well, you don't see a whole lot of that in the scriptures. About the only one that I can think of is when Jesus... He, he, uh, a blind man, he says, you know, he, he uh, does this effort to heal him and he says, do you see anything? And the guy goes, yeah, but everybody looks like trees, you know, it's, 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 it's blurry. And so uh-huh. Jesus, again, applies this healing to him and then he's fully healed. Mm-hmm. So is it right all of a sudden or does it take a while? Uh, what exactly is a 
healing from this where things are claimed, but if you look at the person and you talk with them at all, they haven't been healed. They still need their cane to walk. They, their leg is not fully restored. All these kind of questions come up when you get into experience. But yet at the same time, there are wonderful, marvelous testimonials of healing taking place in the church. And for me, I'm saying viva healing, you know, Mm -hmm. that's awesome to have that. So we never want to pour cold water on the idea of people being healed. But I can see why there are people, especially in the non-Pentecostal camp, and even in the Pentecostal camp, that are just mm, leery and a little skepticism in there about the genuine nature of that. Because if this person has this gift of healing, why isn't everybody healed then that they lay hands on? Mm -hmm. And why isn't this gift effective uh, comprehensively and not just selectively? Because all those people that go to these meetings in those wheelchairs, vast majority of them go home in those wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. And so, hmm, you know, some person having this gift, yeah, so... I I uh, subscribe to something, and I use that gifts of healings as maybe a little hint of what's going on. We are commanded in the scriptures when people are sick or they've got something wrong, we are to take steps to see them healed. But if gifts of healings, that might mean that both the agent and the means of the healing is never set in stone. It can vary, and it might surprise you. Mm-hmm. So it might be one person laying hands on this person. It might be one person anointing them with oil. It might be one person just praying for them and a healing takes place. Glory to God. Mm -hmm. It might be a whole group of people circling the person and pray. It might be a whole auditorium of people in the church that join their hearts in prayer for that person and they're healed. So the agency, who it does it, can be unpredictable. And the same way with the means. Sometimes it is through the laying on of hands. Sometimes it is through the anointing of oil. Uh, James gives us that instruction in James 5. He Mm -hmm. says, anyone sick, have the elders come and anoint them and pray for them, and and the person will be raised up. So I can live with that to say when someone needs healing, let's use any and all means to pray for them and to use these things like laying on of hands and anointing and that and let God do his work. In the back of our minds, though, and this is, I I know this sounds like disbelief and a cup of cold water being poured over the whole thing, but we also have to recognize that we don't dictate to God what he's going to do and these healings. This is according to his sovereign purposes and his sovereign uh, uh, plans. And so the poster boy for this is Jesus himself in the garden. Mm-hmm. What did he pray? Father, let this cup pass from me. Yeah. Take this cup from me. But what does he end it with? Yet not my will, yeah. but yours be done. And so as long as we have that attitude to say, you know, we want to see that person healed, Lord, it's just breaking our hearts to see what they're going through. Mm-hmm but not our will, yours be done. In fact, I like what some Christians have said to say, yeah, God heals them, he takes them home, and they no longer suffer at all. Right. And so just what exactly is the answer to that prayer? So, Thank you for that, Mark. You know, yeah. I mean, there's so much more to get into this, though, of yeah. Jesus right. promising us if we ask anything in his name, he'll do it. Yeah. So 
lightning round, one last question. If Jesus knew that the fig tree was not yet in season, why did he curse it for not having fruit? I don't know. (laughs) Well, my guess is it's, it's, uh, I'm a teacher and I think he's teaching. Okay. Because he's talking about the right season and the wrong season Mm -hmm. for the kingdom as well. And not just figs. Right. (laughs) <laughs> so, so you do know, actually. But, oh, no, that's a guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Jesus might correct me when I get up there, and that's fine. Yeah. You'd be cool with that, wouldn't you? You bet. If he corrects you? I don't care. <laughs> as long as I get to just look at him as long as I want. Yeah. Amen to that. Mark, it's been a wonderful wants. time with you. Thank you so much. I've so always appreciate you and seeing you and your wisdom. Thank you. And have a wonderful Easter with your family. Yeah, we are going to have a fun time. Good. I love it. There are pastors, because of this COVID thing yeah. going on this last year, they're saying, we are having a party on Easter Sunday. Fond. They're getting the sliding deals, you know, nice. and the games and the the parents sitting around at the table drinking coffee and <laughs> everything on Easter. That's fantastic. Know, the whole day. Yeah. Well, thank you once again. That wraps up our show for the day. I so appreciate you listening to this time with me. I appreciate you, and I'm looking forward to our time tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.